study it will be in Hebrews, actually. The book of Hebrews is where we're going to be. In the days of the early church, being a disciple of Jesus was costly. His open devotion to Jesus uh, often brought persecution upon you. Persecution they endured uh, took many forms, including physical violence, as well as uh, suffered being reviled and having all manner of evil set against them. And we're familiar with the stories we've heard about that. And as you can imagine, the persecution had a terrible impact on the the lives of, of these disciples. One poet of the day of the early church said disciples of Jesus were a panting, huddled flock whose crime, their only crime, was Jesus. The only thing they were guilty of was being more devoted to Jesus than they were to anyone or anything else, even their own lives. This devotion cost them family, friends, homes, jobs, comfort, and again, even their lives. Now, if we're not careful, what we can do is we can hear stories like that and we can think, man, that's terrible. I'm glad the world is better now. People aren't like that anymore. But this sort of thing happens all over the world right now. As I read, as I read just a few minutes ago, millions of Christians, 340, suffer under persecution right now, today. Um, these are the top 50 countries in the world where Christians are persecuted. The ones that are red, the persecution is extreme. The ones in the orange, persecution is just real bad. Um, and it is difficult and dangerous and costly to be a Christian in those places. But there are disciples of Jesus in those countries met together today, preached the gospel, made disciples, baptized believers, and did what they could to advance the kingdom despite the dangers they face. Now, since I'm on our Oklahoma Free Will Baptist International Mission Board or Oklahoma Mission Board, and I help with the Reach the Unreached India, which we've talked about in weeks I received quarterly reports from all the church planters that Oklahoma sponsors, Oklahoma Free Will Baptist sponsors. And I read them and I send them on to the churches who sponsor them. And, and I want to read you a report, part of a report I received last quarter. Pastor, and I've had to, I can't say his name, I'm not supposed to say their names on social media or anywhere in public because while it's unlikely anyone from India is watching TV in Gaiman, watching church in Gaiman, if they do and they find his name, it would cost him his life. Believers were having a worship service at the church. During this time, 15 to 20 Hindu fundamentalists came in, snatched the phone of the pastor, and interrogated him as to why he was doing religious conversion. He said, I'm not doing any conversion here. Instead, I'm telling the truth. And that truth is Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes in him finds peace, joy, happiness, and salvation. I was a Hindu, but I came to know Jesus. So I followed him. Then the fundamentalists asked the believers. Some of them said, we are advicee, which is an aboriginal people. We were sick and under the bondage of witchcraft. Family problems were always there. Nothing good was happening to us. But when this man of God came and prayed for us, our sickness disappeared. We were healed and delivered from witchcraft and no more family problems. We are in complete peace and happiness and with good health. So we are worshiping Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Having heard this, the fundamentalists moved Toward the pastor and accused him of religious conversion, which is a crime in this part of India. Dragged him out of the house and started beating him mercilessly. On his phone, the Hindus made a video of a false accusation. Published in the newspaper also, so they published it in the newspaper. They beat him in such a way, the pastor is still having serious body pain, head pain, and chest pain. The fundamentalists took him to the police station and jailed him for a day and a night. But at 2 a.m. 
in the night, the police officer released him saying, I know Christians are good people. They pray to Jesus as their God and he heals sick people. You go and I will look into this matter. The police officer even gave a vehicle and escorted him to his rent house. Seeing the police jeep, the owner of the house asked the pastor to vacate his house immediately. His wife was pregnant and where he would go immediately, he didn't know. While the miscreants, those who harassed him, are waiting outside to kill him. With the help of the believers, early in the morning the next day, another pastor told him to escape from that place. Believers vacated the house and kept all their belongings in their houses. And the pastor escaped by God's grace and came to his in-law's place. Now he is undergoing medical treatment because of his inner injuries. He needs to go for many scanning, his head, his chest, total body scan, but he doesn't have any money. Another pastor has arranged for some money for him. And they request, please pray. God would provide funds for the scans and complete treatment. He will be healed fully and pray for his wife to have a safe delivery. Despite that, this pastor still pastors eight churches. He shared the gospel with I don't know how many people, but 150 people heard the gospel and thus of Jesus for the very first time through him in that quarter. And he led 10 people to Jesus. This in the reports from India this is daily. This is always what it's like for them. When they gather like we're gathering, it is always dangerous. It is always a risk. They could always be killed. And it's not just India. Again, 50 countries across the world. This is their reality. Today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so we are, as I said, departing from our study in Revelation to remember the persecuted church as God's Word commands us to do. So if you have your Bible, open it to Hebrews 13 and 3. And when you find that, I want to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. If you have found it, I want you to hold your copy of God's Word over your head, or as high as you can. Hold it up. And know that what you're doing, having this Bible in your hand, is illegal in 53 countries of the world. Okay, open your Bible now, and we're all going to read Hebrews 13 and 3 together. And I know we all have different translations, I don't care. That's not the point. I want us all to read it out loud. Read it loud, read it proud. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are badly treated since you yourselves are also in the body. What you just did in opening and reading God's word is a criminal act. In 53 countries, it is punishable by arrest where you will be sent to prison to be punished, arrest where you will be sent to a reeducation camp to be taught to trust the beloved dictator or where you will be tortured until you renounce Christ or until you will simply just be killed for what you just did in that moment. For those of you that have electronic Bibles, in Afghanistan, the Taliban moves through the city and they look in people's smartphones to see if they have a Bible app on there. And if they are, they're arrested and they're taken. Well, let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We praise you. For the freedoms we have right here today. Lord, to gather without fear. 
to gather, to, to read your word out loud. Father, we had a multitude of translations read because of the riches of your word we experience. In many of these 53 countries, Father, everyone doesn't have a Bible. Maybe one or two people do. In many of these 53 countries, they may only have part of a Bible in their language. And we not only have all the Bible in our language, we have it in a multitude of translations, whichever one we like. Help us not take this freedom for granted. And Lord, as we gather boldly, unafraid, we didn't give a, a second thought to any danger we may face for being here today. Let us not take that for granted either. This assembling together as the children and the saints of God is not a minor thing. It is not a secondary thing. It is not an add-on to our lives as your children and as disciples of Jesus. It is a fundamental aspect of who we're to be and what we're to do. Elevate in our eyes the importance of the gathering together. And this week as we go out and opportunities arise to talk to people about Jesus and, and the devil tries to make us afraid, let us remember we are free in America to share the gospel. There's no arrest. There's no persecution. There's no hardships. Just maybe, maybe a little awkwardness. Let us care more for souls and more for your glory than we do for the awkwardness it may cause. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The author of Hebrews tells us to remember those who are imprisoned for Jesus as though we are imprisoned with them. We are to remember those who are suffering as though we are suffering with them. So what I want to do today is I want to give us three reasons why we're to remember the persecuted church. Number one, the persecuted church is our family. There are two primary metaphors God's word uses for the global church, right? Not just a local church, but the church universal, the global church throughout the earth. And these two metaphors are meant to remind us of the unity of the global church. One is the body of Christ. One of the most common descriptions of the church in God's word is as the body of Christ. And we are told all people who are born again are a part of this body. Right? There is one body, but it has many parts. And all the parts of the body, though they are many, are still just one body. So is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were made to drink of one spirit. There is one body, the body of Christ, and every person who has repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ becomes a part of this one body through the washing and the regeneration and the new birth through the Spirit of God. This is true of all people, regardless of social or economic status, regardless of what religion they may have been prior to coming to Jesus, regardless of any nationality. All are part of one body. Now, one of the things to remember about this, I think for us, it's harder to remember this than it is, say, for international Christians. For us, there are so many of us. There's 
Free Will Baptists and Nazarenes and First Baptists and Independent Baptists and Pentecostals and, and non-denominationals. And the Church of God in Christ, Cleveland, and the Church of God in Christ somewhere else. I mean, there's all of this stuff. And so we often, if we're not careful, we, we can define the body of Christ as, as our local church. Or maybe our denomination. But, but those people over there, they're not part of the body we are. But they are. Denominationalism is, is problematic when it causes us to see other genuine believers as less than. Because they don't believe exactly the way we do. But beyond that, it's not just the church locally. It is the church globally. The, the pastor in India I read about at the beginning. At some point years ago, he repented of his sins and he believed in Jesus Christ. And then through the spirit, he has been made part of the body of Christ. We are part of the same body he is. Just a different part, but the same body. This image is used in Hebrews 13 and 3. That we, since you ourselves are in the same body. It's a picture of those who are suffering. They're a part of the same body of Christ we are a part of. We remember the persecuted church because we're all part of the same body, the body of Christ. They have believed in the same Jesus we have believed in. They have been saved, given the same grace by the same God we have been given grace by. They have been washed and regenerated by the same spirit we have been washed and regenerated by. We have far more in common with a disciple of Jesus in India than we do with someone who may share our political affiliation in America, but does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They are part of the same body we are. We remember them for that. The other is the family of God. Another common metaphor for the global church is a family. And this is obviously from the Bible. We were predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. God did according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined refers to what God planned and then does for those he redeems. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to do certain things for the people he redeemed through faith in Jesus Many are the things, but one in particular mentioned here, to adopt us as his children. I think this is something that should be obviously a, a massive thing for us to take in. The Bible so clearly describes prior to coming to Jesus, we were the enemies of God because of our evil attitudes, evil thoughts and evil actions. And God, through Jesus, brought an end to the hostility between us, made it possible for us to no longer be God's enemies, for the condemnation and the guilt of our sin to be taken away. But He didn't just make it possible for us to be forgiven and then send us on the way. Right? Have you ever had someone that was a, an enemy and then you forgave them and the hostility ended, but did a close friendship evolve from that? Maybe, but probably not. Not, not often. But what happened with God was he not only brought an end to the hostility and forgave us of our sins, but he then adopted us, made us his own children. We are the sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. This was God's idea. 
He, he planned to do this and he did it for his own good pleasure. It brought him joy to adopt us into his family. If you have been redeemed through Jesus, right? You have repented of your sins. You have been, you have believed in Jesus. Then right now, you are an adopted child of God. Now, adoption in the Roman world, which is the context through which Paul writes in Ephesians, could take place at any age. In fact, from what I've read, rarely did they happen. Do they adopt children as we do? Typically in our culture, we, we want to adopt a child so we can raise them. But in their culture, very often what they did was they wouldn't adopt a child because the child could then grow up and bring shame to their name. What they would do was they may adopt an older person, like somebody in their 20s or 30s, who had already proven themselves, proven their character, and they would bring not shame but glory to their family. But God has adopted us not as those who have proven themselves good, who would bring glory to His name, but as those who were His rebels. And then He saved us and He adopted us. And with adoption... Basically, when a person was adopted, their former life was wiped away. If they had debts in their former life, they were gone. Family relationships in their former life were gone. Their former name was gone. They were now identified and known only and completely by the family who had adopted them. This gave the adoptee an entirely new family. It brought them in to whatever blessings and benefits came with being a part of this adopting family. Our adoption as sons and daughters, it, it does redefine who we are. The old is past, the new has come. And this gives us not only a new father, for the Bible says we are aware of our father the devil and did the things he wanted, but now God is our father. But not only did it give us new father, it gave us new brothers. It gave us new sisters. If you've been a part of any church for any period of time, you've heard someone refer to someone else as brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. That's a biblical thing. That's not a colloquial thing. That's not an old-fashioned thing. That's not something that they did in the old-time days that we've kind of evolved from now. The point of that was to say we're family. Brother Red because Red is my brother. That's, that's the way we're defined. I, I have a whole new family in Christ. And it's, and it's you people. You're my family. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. But it's not just, but it's not just y'all. It's, it's free will Baptist as a whole are my brothers and sisters. But it's not just free will Baptist. It's also Nazarenes and, and First Baptists and Independent Baptists and Pentecostals and, and non-denominationals. It's all those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. They, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's not just those here. The global church are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, the pastor I, I read about from India has been redeemed through faith in Jesus. He has been adopted as a child of God. Therefore, he is our brother. I think this is critical to remember these two things. The same body. Because our church, our church cares for one another well, I believe. If someone in our church were taken and arrested and imprisoned for Jesus, we would care. 
We would do what we could to help. We would pray for them. Because we love one another. We're brothers and sisters. But it has to extend beyond here. We understand that that applies to those everywhere. They are our brothers and sisters. And because they are our brothers and sisters, we remember the persecuted. We are all part of the same family. So we remember the persecuted because they're our family. But the persecuted church, we remember them also because the persecuted church is blessed. Now this seems out of place and yet strangely correct. It seems out of place because suffering never feels like being blessed. No matter how many times the Bible tells us to count it all joy when we suffer various trials. But it also seems right because we know the Bible does say count it all joy when you suffer various trials. But more specifically, we know what Jesus said. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the greatest facets of Jesus' teaching is his brutal honesty. Jesus never glossed over the reality of life. He never said, follow me, and I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. He never said, follow me, and you'll never get sick, and you'll never have hardship, so long as you have faith. No, Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross, be ready for hardship, be ready for persecution, be ready to suffer. In this world, you will have tribulation. What they've done to me, they'll do to you. He was clear. And so here, though, he says the persecuted are blessed, which is, again, a strange combination. But why are the persecuted persecuted first before we get to how they're blessed? First, they're persecuted for righteousness sake. Righteousness here would refer to being righteous and to doing righteous. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ have been made righteous by God. They are now the righteousness of God in Christ. They have been made righteous, but it doesn't end there. Having been made righteous by God, that righteousness then compels us to do righteousness. We we live holy. We care for others. We turn the other cheek. We are generous in our in our finances and with all things. We we live differently because of what Jesus has done for us. And when people live righteously, there's unfortunately going to be times when people don't like it. They'll not like the righteous way they live. The early church. One of the reasons the early church was persecuted was because the Roman government kind of wanted the people to live off the government and to need the government. And the early church met the needs of the people. They cared for the poor. They healed the sick. And the people didn't need the government so much anymore. And they didn't like that. Christians across the world are often persecuted Simply for doing good deeds. 
praying for someone that's sick. In India, the reports from India, I'm just going to tell you, their reports, they don't live the same world we live in. Their reports frequently talk about they cast demons out of people. They help people by casting demons out of them. Many times, the families have done this to the person because they can make money off of them and their, how whatever the demonization does to them. And because they help them get free, the family loses money and they persecute them. They're persecuted not because they're, they're boycotting, not because they're yowling and screaming, but because they're doing good in the name of Jesus. They're also persecuted for Jesus' sake. Jesus says when the world at large sees enough Jesus in us, it will treat us the way it treated Jesus. Now, this, I think, is significant to understand in our day. We're often told the church in America, church at large, we'll just let the church in America, it's not liked. We're not popular. I don't know if you, you may not have noticed that, but the church in America isn't overly popular in our day. The reason, we're told, is because we're so unlike Jesus. Right? The famous quote by Gandhi, I like your Jesus, but not your Christians, for they are so unlike your Jesus. And so we're told, if the church, if Christians were just more like Jesus, the world would love us and accept us. But I wonder, is that accurate? I mean, who was more like Jesus than Jesus? And how did the world like him? Well, it didn't. It betrayed him. It had him falsely accused. It spit upon him. It beat him. And it murdered him. So when we're like Jesus, we'll not be loved. We'll more than likely be despised. And that's the point here. It's a blessing for the world to see so much of Jesus in us that it hates us. That's a part of what Jesus is talking about. So what ultimately, though, is the great blessing? The great blessing is that the reward in heaven will be great. Those who are treated this way, persecuted for righteousness, persecuted for his name, can rejoice and be glad for two reasons. Number one, they're in good company. Right? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you've read the Old Testament, you know Israel often sinned. And when Israel would sin, God would raise up a prophet to go declare, thus says the Lord, turn from this wicked thing I dislike. But as God's prophets would rise, other prophets would rise. God's prophets would say, turn from this thing I despise, thus says the Lord. The other prophets would say, God says, you're okay. He's happy with what you're doing. The prophets would say, God is going to send Babylon to destroy this city. And the other prophets would say, we have peace and safety all is well in our lives. Now guess which prophet the people like best? If you guess the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, you're wrong. There's the other prophets. Interestingly enough, in light of what our culture says about being like Jesus, the people... The masses have always liked the false prophets. The one who said peace when there was no peace. 
But the one who said, thus says the Lord and stood for the word of God, were always despised. So part of the blessing is we're in good company. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for the sake of Jesus, are in good company because they are in the same company as the prophets who have gone before them. Then the second is the reward in heaven is great. We don't have time to get into rewards and all that there are. The major aspect here is, is something we have talked about in recent weeks in Revelation. And that of understanding what is coming is better than what we lose here. That's his point Jesus is making. You, you suffer here, and he's not undermining the reality of suffering. He doesn't call it anything that's not. It's hard, it's miserable, it's painful. But there's a great reward in heaven. And the reward in heaven is greater than anything we, we give up or we lose in this life. And I wonder, do, do we... Do we believe that? I mean, do we believe devotion to Jesus, regardless of the cost, is of greater worth than anything that devotion could cost us in this life? Whether it would be a job, whether it would be a friend, whether it would be some sort of a relationship of some kind. Is the reward of devotion to Jesus better than the loss of? We may face because of our devotion to Jesus. The reality is, I don't know that we can answer that honestly until we're in the moment. Because it's easy. I mean, it's easy to say, absolutely, bless God. But tomorrow may well bring some sort of challenge. Probably not to our safety in life, but to our comfort, to a lack of awkwardness in a conversation. There will be tested. There it'll be seen. I, I don't think we can say in a moment where we're in a room filled with people who believe mostly like we do. Yes. I don't think we know. We really don't know until the moment when the time happens. I can assure you, however, the persecuted church, they do believe this. Kelly and I are reading a daily devotion written by a staff member for Voice of the Martyrs. The devotions are based upon his journal entries from many visits and interviews with the persecuted Christians across the world. Listen to what he said in one of his devotions. I'm often floored by the high price our brothers and sisters in hostile and restricted nations are asked to pay for following Christ. When I and so many Christians in the U.S. are asked to pay so little. I'm even more amazed when they pay the price, not grudgingly or with frustration or disappointment, but with a pure, unfiltered joy. This is the attitude of someone who knows their treasure is in heaven and not on earth. We remember the persecuted because they are blessed. And then finally, we remember the persecuted because the persecuted church is an example. Thinking of the persecuted church as an example can seem strange. As the persecuted church... Is not typically as theologically advanced as we are. Again, for those of us who have complete Bibles in our hands, we have more than the average persecuted Christian has in this. For those of us who have multiple Bibles, 
We have an embarrassment of riches that most persecuted churches don't have. If you've ever read a commentary, if you've ever read a, a nonfiction Christian book on the Bible, like David Jeremiah or something along those lines, you have more theological education than the average persecuted pastor. They certainly don't have any sort of building as nice as this where we can gather, they can gather to worship Jesus. So are the persecuted Christians or the persecuted church, what are they an example of? They're an example of how to respond to suffering for Jesus. In, in reading about the persecuted church through this devotion and, and through other things that I, groups I follow online and such, the persecuted church doesn't respond to persecution in the ways we think they might. They don't respond to persecution by taking up arms and fighting back. In fact, in the stories I've read and the stories I've heard, they rarely fight back at all. They take the idea of turning the other cheek to a really strong extreme to prove they believe the words of Jesus. Rather than taking up arms or going on the offensive with any sort of physical violence, they respond with prayer for themselves and for their persecutors. And they respond by sharing the gospel the very next day after being released from prison, after being beaten, as soon as they're able to get up and go out. Because they believe what God can do through prayer and the gospel is greater than what they could do with a gun or with their fists. Now this is... Almost certainly contrary to our way of thinking. Certainly not the way I was raised. As a Ross Doolin, turn the other cheek for things sissies did. Certainly wasn't something we did. We didn't get even. We got ahead. And if I got into a fight at school, the question wasn't, did you start it? The question was, did you win? It was expected we would fight. And yet, that's not how they respond. Not even close. And while it's contrary to, to my way of thinking, my natural inclinations, and probably yours as well, it is right in line with what we see in God's Word. Open your Bible to Acts 3, page 832. We're just going to skim a, a large passage of Scripture. We won't have time to even talk about a lot of these verses. I'm just going to read them to set the stage. Acts 3 and, and 1. Now, Peter and John were going up the temple at the ninth hour of prayer. A man who had been able to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple grounds, he began to ask, began asking for a charitable gift. Peter, along with John, said, look at it, looked at him intently and said, look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something. Peter said, I not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. <laughs> They're doing righteousness. Grasped him by the hand. He raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. He leapt up. He stood and began walk, entering the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people were amazed about what had just happened. Now look 
chapter 4, verse 1. So what happens is they do this, a crowd gathers. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And as they were speaking, Peter takes the opportunity to preach the gospel. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, laid hands on them, put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. But some had already believed. Now look down at verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and the elders, the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all who have the high priestly descent. They placed them in the center. They began to inquire by what power, what name they had done this. Now look down at verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with him, they had nothing to say in reply. When they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What are we going to do with these men? For a fact, a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them as apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any longer, in, speak any longer to any person in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. In verse 21, when they had threatened... Then further let them go, finding no basis to punish them on account of the people, for all glorifying God, what had happened. So, they're going to pray. They do a righteous act and heal a long, lame man. Crowd gathers. They use that opportunity to preach the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders don't like it, begin to oppose them, shut them up, tell them they are no longer allowed to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. So this is the start of... Early church's persecution. How do they respond at this point? What are they to do? These are the religious leaders of the day. It's more than like a church. Right? They had legitimate power in the community. They could cause them to be killed. They could cause them to be excommunicated. They could cause them to lose their jobs. They could cause much hardship in their lives. What, what is the early church to do? Look at verse 23. When they been released, they went to their own companions, reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices to God and with one mind and said, and they began to pray. And their prayer is focused on the greatness of God. Right here at the first, they're, they're not praying about their problems. They're not they're not telling God what these people have said and, and what's happened. And they're just doing they're praying and they're saying, God, you're great. You're awesome. You've made everything. You're sovereign Lord over all creation. Then in verse 27, after doing that, they finally address what's going on. I'm sorry, verse 29. They finally address their problems after confessing that God is great and awesome, mighty and rules. And now God look at their threats. And this is the only mention they make of their threats. What do you think they pray? Make them be nice. Make them start agreeing with us. Protect us so they won't see us. Or know we're there. No, look at what they say. Grant it to your servants to speak your word with all confidence. We're still going to go preach, God. Will you empower us as we go? Will you fill us with your spirit? Will you keep the fear of these men at bay in our hearts so we can go share the gospel no matter what it costs? And as we share... Extend your hand to heal, do signs and wonders, the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit 
spoke the word of God with boldness. They didn't just generally pray for God to make somebody bold. Make them bold. We've been threatened. Give us your spirit so we can go keep preaching the gospel. We've been threatened. Show yourself mighty on our behalf as we continue to preach the gospel. The early church was not going to respond in anger. They were not going to respond with violence. They didn't respond with anything that would be natural or worldly or of this world in any way. They responded with prayer and they responded by continuing to preach the gospel despite threats, despite persecution, despite whatever would come. This is exactly how the persecuted church responds. They get beat and they pray for God to save those who beat them. One of the stories Kelly and I read, there was a, a guy and he was, wasn't a bishop over the area, but he was pastor over pastors in an area. And the pastor of the church that, that, that Tom Nettleson was there to meet had beat this guy when he was a pastor. He had not only arrested him, but he had violently assaulted him on multiple occasions. And he prayed for God to save him, and he did. And then he discipled him and made him into a pastor over a church. They get tossed in prison. And they share Jesus in the prison. They're forced to flee a country. And they go to the closest country they can to be close and pray for opportunities to go back. As the voice of the martyrs guy said about one brother who was forced to flee Iran with his family. But was looking for ways to go back. Yes, they wanted to go back to the nation that had imprisoned them. And had harassed them. And them. It's his whole family. He was the pastor. He was arrested and beaten. He wouldn't cave. So they arrested his wife and tossed her into prison. Beat her. They wouldn't cave. So they arrested his son. Put him in prison. His teenage son. Put him in prison and beat him. And they still wouldn't cave. So they just let him out. And then they had to leave the country. They were looking for a way to go back. They didn't see a nation that had imprisoned them. Instead they saw millions of Iranians. Imprisoned by Islam. Waiting to know there is a Savior ready and willing to free them and heal them and bring them into fellowship with Him. This is the example of how to live for Jesus amid great difficulty and severe persecution and tremendous suffering. We remember the persecuted because they are an example. The reality is an example we may soon have to follow. The Apostle Paul said, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. In the West, we have largely been spared from legitimate persecution. But the tides are turning. And we're not quite at the imprisoned and beaten houses burnt down yet. The church is certainly falling out of favor with our government, with our culture. And it's not suddenly going to turn back. Right? I mean... Let's be honest and realize we pray, we vote. It doesn't matter who wins in 2024. They're not going to fix that. The, the sort of the spirit of the age has turned against us around here. And it's only going to get worse. 
And so persecution for the word, for righteousness sake, for Jesus sake, it may well come. How are we going to respond in those times? Will our devotion to Jesus carry us to responding in a way that brings us blessings from Jesus? Will our devotion to Jesus lead us to respond like the early church, like the current persecuted church, even like Jesus, who could have called more than 12 legions of angels to defend Him, but but didn't? Or will we respond with violence in ways that are not Jesus, not church, not God's Word? Well, again, those are things we won't know until it comes, but we should certainly have thoughts like that in our minds. So I want to leave us with three, three takeaways, three, three ways to respond to this message. One, let's be sure we see the global church, the persecuted church, as our family, and let's pray for them. Second, let's appreciate the great faith and the deep devotion of the persecuted church. And let's pray for them. And then thirdly, recognize the example of the persecuted church and pray for them. Now, praying for them is easy to do. You can even be specific. You you follow on social media or you go to places like Open Doors USA, Voice of the Martyrs. They give daily updates. You can even sign up for an email or, or there's an app, a prayer app. And every day they will give you specific persecution stories to pray for, to pray about. And so let's be a people who pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering greatly for their devotion to Jesus. I'll leave us with two quotes from our persecuted family. Tell the world, please tell the world about our brothers and sisters in North Korea, please. The one great fear I've seen from our persecuted family is they're afraid we don't know what they're going through or we don't care what they're going through. And so their prayers are always remember us. And then another one, don't pray our persecution to end. Pray we will be obedient through our suffering. We have a time of response just to